Well, today is the third week in our series on the book of Ezekiel, and unless you've been totally asleep for the whole thing, you can't help noticing that Ezekiel is a book all about God's judgment. So God's judgment is just about to fall on Jerusalem, but a thousand miles away in Babylon, most of God's people are actually there in exile under God's judgment. And so you remember that while the prophet Jeremiah is warning people in Jerusalem, the prophet Ezekiel has been sent to Babylon and he's warning the people there. And it is uh, a time of the most horrific judgment in the Old Testament is about to fall. Now, how do you feel when you read about God's judgment? I wonder what kind of response you have inside when you read some of the stuff that we've been finding in Ezekiel. Um, Like Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 8. Don't look it up, but I'll read it to you. I myself am against you, Jerusalem, and I will inflict punishment on you in the sight of the nations. Because of all your detestable idols, I will do to you what I have never done before and will never do again. Therefore, in your midst, fathers will eat their children. Children will eat their fathers. I will inflict punishment on you and will scatter all your survivors to the winds. Or down in uh, chapter 7, verse 8. I'm about to pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you. I will judge you according to your conduct and repay you for your detestable practices. I will not look on you with pity or spare you. Then you will know that it is I, the Lord, who strikes the blow. Now, when we read about God's anger and jealousy, does that kind of raise questions for you? I mean, we get angry, don't we? But what does it mean that God gets angry? We get jealous in in an insecure, fickle way often, but what does it mean that God gets jealous? Is this God that we're seeing in the book of Ezekiel, is, is that the same God we know? The loving God that we read about in the New Testament? I mean, do you ever find yourself asking questions when you're reading these passages? Is this actually fair? What's going on here? Those kinds of questions are lurking around in these chapters 12 to 18 of Ezekiel. And I think the clearest thing that stands out uh, right at the front, it's good to see, is that God actually does not want to judge anyone. Now, we see that right at the um, end of this section, and let's look at it now. Let's skip over to Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 32, the last verse in Ezekiel 18. God says there to Israel, I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So right in the middle of a book that is all about judgment, we find a verse telling us that God does not want anyone to die. So what's going on here? Why 30 chapters of judgment and the sword and plague and famine when God actually does not want anyone to die? Well, let's have a look. Back two chapters and we'll jump in at chapter 16. Uh, It's the biggest chapter in the book of Ezekiel. It's the most graphic chapter in the book of Ezekiel. 
And if we've just been reading through from Ezekiel chapter 1 to 16, when you hit 16, it's actually quite a change in the tone of the book. It's almost as if someone has uh, picked up the remote control and changed channels. Because the first 15 chapters are all about God's judgment. But this chapter uh, is all about God's love. It's like we've turned off law and order and we've turned on the bold and the beautiful or the young and the restless. We've turned off the documentary, the war documentary, and we've turned on a love, a love story. We've gone from war and famine to a story with love and passion and, as, and betrayal. It's as if in chapter 16 God wants to show us what's going on inside his heart. You know those McDonald's ads where uh, the guy or the girl is doing something and then it freezes and the chest opens up and out comes the real them? Well, there's nothing changing about who God is. Uh, the God we've been seeing in Ezekiel is the real God. But what we're doing in chapter 16 is catching a glimpse into God's heart. What's actually going on in God as he judges? So let's have a look and we'll just read the first five verses. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices and say, this is what the sovereign Lord says to Jerusalem. Your ancestry and birth were in the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, your cord was not cut nor were you washed with water to make you clean, nor were you rubbed with salt or wrapped in cloths. No one looked on you with pity or had compassion enough to do any of these things for you. Rather, you were thrown out into the open field, for on the day you were born, you were despised. Now, this will be a love affair, but uh, it's one of those rags to riches ones. At this stage, it's a bit lopsided, isn't it? Israel is a helpless baby. Her ancestry is terrible. Her parents are enemies of God, Hittites and Amorites. It's kind of that um, Notting Hill, uh, pretty woman genre where one family has everything and the other family has nothing and there's no way that these two will ever get together. That's what's happening here. Israel is an abandoned, unloved baby and her ancestry is that she's from the enemies of God. And then in verse 6, the hero arrives, the lover of the story. It's God. And God looks on Israel with compassion. Look at verse 6. Then I passed by and saw you kicking about in your blood. And as you lay there in your blood, I said to you, live. I made you grow like a plant of the field. You grew up and developed and became the most beautiful of jewels. See, this despised baby develops into a beautiful young woman. And in the next few verses, it starts to get quite intimate. God spreads the corner of his cloak over her. That's the language in the Old Testament of a man courting a woman. It's exactly what happens between Boaz and Ruth in the book of Ruth. But here it's happening between God and Israel. Verse 8. Later I passed by, and when I looked at you and saw that you were old enough for love, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I gave you my solemn oath, and I entered into a covenant with you, declares the Sovereign Lord, and you became 
mine. Now already there's a different feel to the rest of the book of Ezekiel, isn't there? This language is not about God's anger and judgment here. It's about his passion, his love. You became mine. He's delighting in Israel. Israel are his. And he's just about to shower her with gifts that will make her beautiful. Look at verse 10. I clothed you with an embroidered dress and put leather sandals on you. I dressed you in fine linen and covered you with costly garments. I adorned you with jewellery. I put bracelets on your arms and a necklace around your neck. Now we know that you don't measure someone's love by the money that uh, you spend on someone and we're sophisticated enough to know there's five love languages and gifts is only one of them. But, I mean, the bottom line is when I buy Jill a necklace or a piece of clothing and it's expensive, she knows that what I'm saying is I love you and I think you're beautiful. And I'm not saying you need the jewellery to look beautiful, but somehow it brings out your beauty. And when I spend a lot of money on it, it's because I want you to look beautiful for me. And that's what God's doing here. He's giving Israel jewellery, expensive clothes. And then he compliments her. He tells her how beautiful she looks in it. She was already beautiful, but God says now his gifts have made her beauty perfect. Fellas on the side, we could uh, get some hints from God here, couldn't we? Look at the second half of verse 13. You became very beautiful and rose to be a queen. And your fame spread among the nations on account of your beauty because the splendor I had given you made your beauty perfect, declares the sovereign Lord. God is in love with Israel. Now, it's not just... Um, the, uh, a kind of theological textbook um, you know the fifth point of God's character is that God's, God is a loving God and so he must love everyone and yes God loves Israel there's actually God is in love with Israel here he delights in his people and yet when you stop and think about it this is the same Israel that we have just been reading about for 15 chapters that God is about to judge and destroy so what's going on here? What has happened to God's beautiful bride? Well, um, we find out in the next verse. And as I read it, I want you to think about it from God's point of view. Because this parable is written from God's point of view. God, is, God loves this beautiful woman. He's given himself to her. He delights in her. She is his. And listen to verse 15. This is God speaking to his uh, lover. But you trusted in your beauty and used your fame to become a prostitute. You lavished your favours on anyone who passed by and your beauty became his. You took some of your garments to make gaudy high places where you carried on your prostitution. Such things should not happen, nor should they ever occur. Israel has become a prostitute, not just one act of adultery, but she is giving herself to anyone who comes along. And why does God tell us this? He wants to see it from his point of view. He wants us to feel how he feels. Israel's idolatry that we've been seeing for the past two weeks, 
they're putting God aside and turning to other gods, to God, that is as if his wife has become a prostitute. This is his Israel, and she's throwing herself at other gods. And his heart is torn open. And you can see the betrayal in the language that he uses. The very gifts that he's given to Israel, the gold necklaces that he gave them, they melted down and made into idols. The beautiful linen that he gave them, they dressed their idols up in. So verse 17, the jewellery that I gave you, the gold and silver that, I, that were mine. Verse 19, the honey that I gave you. And worst of all, verse 20, you took your sons and daughters whom you bore to me and sacrificed them as food to the idols. Was your prostitution not enough? You slaughtered my children and sacrificed them to the idols. Now, God's not um, exaggerating there. That is exactly what happened. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17. Israel sacrificed their children to the idols they'd set up. And you start to get a feel, don't you, for why God needs to do something here. He needs to step in because Israel are just out of control. And as you read on in Ezekiel 16, the language gets more and more explicit as what starts out as a love story becomes a nightmare. Uh, This morning we're not doing the M version, we're doing the PG, so I'm not going to go into it all, but God uses language about Israel that is offensive. The NIV smooths it over so you won't find it if you go looking. Uh, But it actually becomes quite obscene. In in a translation of Calvin's commentary on this passage, This is what it says. The refined taste of modern days will not bear a literal translation of some clauses. Too much for us. And yet, God wrote this. It's language that you would not use of your wife or anyone. Yet that is what their behavior has become to him. To Israel it might not seem much, but to God their behaviour could not be any more disgusting or offensive. And as it gets worse, God has no choice but to judge Israel. Have you ever had to do anything that you don't want to do? Something that you know you've got to do, but you don't want to do it. I remember when I was a kid, some friends having to put down their dog, and they didn't want to do it. But they had to. I've talked to a farmer who had to shoot his own sheep and cattle in a drought. Didn't want to do that. Against everything in him as a farmer, but yet he had to do it. God here does something that he does not want to do. He still loves his bride, and yet for her sake, but more importantly for his sake and for the sake of his name, He must put a stop to her actions. Look at the second half of verse 41. I will put a stop to your prostitution. You will no longer pay your lovers. Then my wrath against you will subside and my jealous anger will turn away from you. I'll be calm and no longer angry. See, God wants us to see that his judgment is not just some cold, callous, nitpicking because we don't obey his rules 
He loves us passionately. These are his people. He's given them chance after chance after chance and they haven't repented. And so he'll do what he promised to do right back in Deuteronomy when he first called them. He'll make them accountable to their actions. And this uh, little love story in verse 16 is a picture of what this whole section is about. God does not want to judge, but look at what his people have done. He has no other choice. Uh, That's what uh, we find back in chapter 12. Don't look it up, but the verses are on the bottom of your outline there. In chapter 12, we find that God has warned Israel about his judgment and he's waiting, holding off, giving them time to repent and they start mocking him for it. Where's this judgment that you're talking about, Ezekiel? When's it ever going to come? It's almost as if they're forcing God's hand to judge them. And then that um, passage that we read in verse 14 that Paul read for us, four times in that little story there, we hear about a country that is under God's judgment. And four times God tells us in that little story in chapter 14 that if Job and Daniel and Noah were in that country, three righteous good men, well, they could save themselves because God's justice is fair. And he won't destroy anyone who doesn't deserve it, but no one else. They couldn't even save their own sons and daughters. Look, 14 verse 16, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they couldn't save their own sons and daughters. Verse 18, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, even if these three men were in it, they could not save their own sons or daughters. They alone would be saved. And then verse 20, As surely as I live, declares the Sovereign Lord, even if Noah, Daniel and Job were in it, they could save neither son nor daughter. They would save only themselves by their righteousness. In other words, when God judges, no one escapes. Except, very strangely, the surprise is that when God will judge Jerusalem, someone will escape. Why? Well, not because they're good, but God will allow some sons and daughters to escape so that when, they, when those ones who've escaped from Jerusalem find their way to Babylon, uh, Ezekiel and the exiles will understand that God's judgment was fair. They got what they deserved. Look at verse 22. Yet there will be some survivors, sons and daughters, who will be brought out of it. They will come to you. And when you see their conduct and their actions, you'll be consoled regarding the disaster I have brought upon Jerusalem, every disaster I have brought upon it. You will be consoled when you see their conduct and their actions, for you will know that I have done nothing in it without cause, declares the Sovereign Lord. God does not want to judge, but when people see his judgment for what it is, and when they see people's sin for what it is, well, people will understand that God had no other choice. In fact, that's what verse 15 is about. Jerusalem is useless, and God's judgment is coming. God does what he doesn't want to do. Earlier this year, um, Bryson used the illustration of a mousetrap to help us think about God's judgment. And I thought it was a really good one. We often think that God's anger is like a mousetrap, don't we? It's poised. It's ready to go off. 
the slightest thing we do wrong and God just snaps. He's angry with us. That is not what God is like at all. God is slow to anger. He has given Israel chance after chance after chance. And his forgiveness is like a mousetrap. It is just ready to go off. Repent and live. I'll forgive you if you turn back to me. He's just waiting to forgive. That's what he wants to do. That's how this section ends in chapter 18, verse 31. Rid yourselves of all the offences you've committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent and live. So although Ezekiel is a book about God's judgment, we need to see that when God judges, he's doing something that he doesn't want to do. And that tension in God, on the one hand, his hatred of sin that he must judge it, and yet his desire to save, well, that tension is what eventually leads to the cross. Because there we see even more clearly than in Ezekiel, the heart of God. Because in the cross, again, God does something that he doesn't want to do. God pours out his judgment on someone who he doesn't want to die, his own son. Why does God do that? Well, so that our sin can be punished, but yet at the same time we can be forgiven. That's the heart of God. He must judge, but he wants to save. And that same passionate heart of God that wanted Israel to repent and come to him, that same passionate God, that heart of God that we see that, that he sent his son to the cross, we see it in Luke 13:34, where he looks over Jerusalem from up on the hill and he says, O Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. Do you feel God's heart there? Now, if you're here this morning, and I've said this the last couple of weeks as well, and you are not a Christian, then I hope you've seen clearly the message of Ezekiel this morning. Do you understand how offensive your rebellion is to God? And yet, do you understand how much he wants to forgive you for it? Don't fool yourself into thinking that doesn't matter to him, it's trivial. Your sin is repulsive to him. It's offensive to him. It hurts him. It makes him angry. It makes him jealous. He hates it. And yet, even stronger than all that is his passion to save you. He wants you to come to him. Realize that you're his, that his arms are stretched out ready to forgive anyone who'll repent. But don't mistake his patience for his indifference. God will not allow himself to be made a fool of. God will not let you treat him as if he's not there and get away with it. One day, God's patience will run out just like it ran out for Israel. And he will judge with a vengeance and a righteousness that will be terrifying.
yet stronger than all that is that he wants you to come to him and be saved. It's only in the light of God's judgment that you can understand his love. What about um, us of us who are followers of Jesus? Well, it's not a bad time to reflect on our hearts, is it? We've seen God's heart. Everything about God wants to save people. Is that what our hearts are like? Do we have hearts that just want people to be saved? Do we warn people because we know that one day God will do what he must do? He'll bring down his judgment. What a terrifying day. And as we just bump into people every day, people who God loves passionately but who don't love him, do you see what a disaster that is? They will give their lives to everything except God. And when you see them doing that, are you jealous for God that they would give him glory? Do you see how much it hurts him? Is your overwhelming desire like God's that they'd be saved? And what about, what about just in what we do? Not, not in what they do, in what we do. We have the potential to bring God great joy as we just enjoy belonging to him and enjoy the riches that he's lavished on us as his bride, all the blessings. But we have the potential to cause him great pain as we treat his gifts with contempt and we spend our lives chasing our own idols instead of him. Do you see how much your sin grieves God? Are you knowing more deeply his incredible love for you? Let's live from the new hearts that God's given us, hearts that are undivided for him. Let's devote ourselves to him. Let's pray.